Hey, what's going on? Welcome to The Doug Show. My name's Doug Cunnington, and in this episode, I interview Sean Ogle from Location Rebel. We talk about copywriting skills for affiliate marketing and have some pretty concrete, actionable things that you can do to hopefully improve well, copywriting and traffic and a few other details, sales, all the good stuff on your affiliate sites. A couple cool things. I've heard about Sean and, and knew of Sean over at Location Rebel for years, actually from when I got started working online in 2013, back when it was just a, a side hustle, a little hobby for me. And I heard Sean on an interview on the Tropical MBA podcast, which we talk about at the end of the interview. It was kind of fun. I will point out a couple things. One, if you like YouTube, check out Sean's YouTube channel. He talks about a lot of the same kind of topics that I talk about for my YouTube channel and this podcast, of course. But he comes at it from a different angle in a lot of ways from sort of freelancing and approaching it as a sort of a step-by-step approach, which he describes better than I just did <laughs> towards the end of the interview. And the other thing I'll point out is he has two sites that are public. They're niche sites. You can check them out and get an idea of some of the copywriting ideas that Sean mentions in the interview. He has a free gift for us. It's a six-part email series about how to get started with your lifestyle business. That's what it says, lifestyle business. And you could follow along in Sean's footsteps there and see how he likes to work. So let's just get to the interview. I'll stop rambling here. Hey, Sean, how's it going today? Doing great, man. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. I'm pumped too. We were just chatting before I hit record that I've actually been aware of you since I first started online in 2013. So we're going to come back to that. But for the people that don't know you, Sean, can you give a quick intro, what you're about and what you do? Yeah. So uh, I started a site called Location Rebel way back in 2009. So I had finance degree, started in July of 07. Worst time ever to get in finance. By February of 2009, everything had collapsed. Long story short, I ended up leaving my job. I moved to Thailand, learned how to do online marketing. And that's what I've been doing for the last 10 years, 11 years, 12, a long time. Um, helping people build niche sites, helping people build freelance writing uh, businesses, and generally allowing people to uh, build businesses that you know give them the ability to spend more time doing the things that they love to do. That's kind of what I always come back to. It's like, how can you build something that's going to allow you to spend more time with friends, family, make money in the process and create more cool stories? Cause that's what life is all about. <laughs> and I take it that was the driver that sort of pulled you out of the, the corporate gig. Do you kind of remember those days sitting in the cubicle and what was it like thinking about making that transition? Yeah, it was a weird time because, you know, I, I'd always kind of followed the path of least resistance. You know, I knew when I was in sixth grade, I was going to go to Oregon State University. I was going to study finance. I was going to room with my best friend. Six months before I graduated, I knew I had a finance job lined up. It was a better job than most of my friends had. I was excited to go wear the suit and tie and go into an office. And it was for a small financial services firm. So there's only like five of us in the office. And six months into it, you start to realize and you're kind of like, wow, this is not what I expected it to be. And you do this in a market that's like crashing. And so everybody around you is unhappy or clients are unhappy. My boss is unhappy. And I'm just like, man, 
you know, I look at what they've been doing for the last 25 years and they don't seem like they're enjoying it. And so you start to kind of say, okay, how do I get out of this? And for me personally, the fact that, you know, at the time the market kind of crashed was a blessing in disguise because if the market had gone the other direction, then you start getting raises, you start having more success and you're like, well, I can't leave this. So when I ended up quitting, it was kind of a, you know, very fortunate because I didn't have anything to lose. And that, that was circa 2009. Is that right? Yeah. So I left in October of 2009. Okay. And the topic for today is going to be around copywriting, which we'll get to in a second, but I love this backstory stuff. So what did you, you quit? Did you have much of a plan? Can you just kind of take us through the first few months? Like what was going on? Yeah. So it's a pretty funny story. So in February of 09, I'd saved all my vacation time for the year to go to Rio de Janeiro, Brazil for carnival with my best friend, Ryan. So I begged my boss for months, like, Hey, you got to let me do this. Like I need a change, whatever. So he says, yes, we go down there for two weeks. We go like hang gliding over the city. We dance in the carnival parade. We go to, um, Iguazu falls, one of the seven natural wonders of the world. The day I got back, uh, he's like, Sean, I want to hear all about your trip, but just so you know, your paycheck's going to be 20% lighter next month. And the month after that, he's basically like, we had to either fire you or everybody took a 20% cut. So I'm like, all right, well, that sucks. And I start thinking like, okay, we got to, we got to come up with another solution here. And a couple months later, my boss comes to me. He's like, Sean, if you can think of any creative ways to save the company money, then I would love to hear about them. So my buddy, Ryan, that I went to Brazil with three weeks after we got back from that trip, he quit his job. He moved to Hawaii. And at the end of the year, he was planning to basically start a world trip. He's like, I'm going to travel around the world until I run out of money. And every day or every couple times a week, I would talk to him on my lunch break while he was in Hawaii. And he's just living the life. He was working as a concierge at a hotel. He had to go do all of the cool things that, you know, the guests did. So he was like, yeah, I'm taking like a, you know, booze cruise or a, you know, sea turtle snorkel trip and all of this stuff. So thinking I was a genius, I went back to my boss and said, hey, boss. And put together a whole proposal. It's very professional. Um, I said, I will take a 50% pay cut if you let me work remotely from Hawaii for three months. I'm going to save us money. You're not going to have to pay for my parking and other expenses here at the office. I'm going to make us more secure. I'm going to allow you guys to travel more as we figure out the whole remote work thing. I'm going to open us up to a new client base. And for a month, we went back and forth and we had a lot of logistical meetings. And so I truly thought this was going to work. And at one point, he calls me into his office. He's like, Sean, we've decided not to accept your proposal but we will accept this as your resignation. And here I am thinking, I was like, are you kidding me? Like I came up with a creative way to save you money, you know, give me some life experience and now you're firing me. And so we went back and forth. I had an opportunity to save my job. I decided not to do it. But at that point I had started Location Rebel six months before. So I'd had a little bit of traction with this blog, but it wasn't making any money yet. And I went home and I cried. I'm like, what the hell am I doing with my life? And by January of 2010, I moved to Thailand, which was one of the best decisions I could have ever made. That was kind of where I really started to learn how to do online marketing. And you know, all the copywriting stuff I learned really was born out of that. That's amazing. I thought it was going to work out. I mean, that's the playbook directly out of the four-hour work week. So I thought it was going to yeah. work. <laughs> I, I really, th and I think I had read that book right around that time as well. And uh, it was actually kind of funny before I left my boss and I kind of got into it and I believe his exact words were, if you think you are ever going to be sitting on a beach before me, you are sorely mistaken. And I still remember January of 2010, I'm in Krabi, Thailand on a beach, <laughs> like, just like, yeah, we, we did it. Okay. We're, we're doing something. Even if I have to go back to a day job, this feels pretty good right now. <laughs> Amazing. So 
good transition into copywriting. So you started learning some of those copywriting chops out there. And we have a, a couple things, right? So my audience is primarily affiliate marketers or people who have content sites. They may have some ads running or something like that. But totally. a lot of times we kind of gloss over the copywriting portion. So there's sort of three main things we're going to go through today. And I want to hit them in order. You've kind of outlined some of this stuff in uh, some of your other content, which we'll link to so people could check it out in depth. But we're going to start off with sort of the metadata area and why that's so important from a copywriting perspective. So everyone keep that in mind, copywriting. So I'll just send it to you, Sean, for metadata. Yeah. Well, it's kind of one of those, you find a lot of bloggers, affiliate marketers, whatever you want to call them, they'll spend hours on pieces of content. They're going to create their cornerstone, amazing content that's really, really useful, but they often don't think about some of the SEO ramifications. And when it comes specifically to metadata, like it's like, okay, you go into your Yoast or whatever, you type in whatever, you know, BS content in there, you do it as an afterthought and you go on. And then you might wonder, well, why hasn't this performed better? But it's the metadata that often is what's going to help you get the click-through rate, which is then going to get Google to prioritize you in search. And so, you know, you have a YouTube channel, for instance. So everybody, you know, talks about how important headlines and thumbnails are. Well, I've kind of found that with my niche sites and everything, it's the description and the headlines can make all the difference in the world. Because if you're looking at, you know, five potential listings to click on, and one of them is actually more treated like an ad, that's kind of what I try and get people to understand is when you're creating metadata, you need to treat it like an advertisement, like you're writing a Facebook ad or writing a, you know, AdSense ad or whatever. And so by learning copywriting and learning how to be persuasive and also how to, you know, work in all the SEO elements and your keywords and everything, you can find that you can get a lot more traffic to your sites, which are in turn going to make you more money. Perfect. And for the, the metadata, I, potentially should have defined this ahead of time. So we're talking the meta title and the meta description, right? So that'll be on the search engine results page. People will see the title of your post and yep. then they'll see the sentence or so describing your content. So do you have any sort of basic tips? Like what are some common mistakes that people often make that you see with say titles, for example? Well, for, for me personally, it's kind of one of those, you know, when you look at SEO, which is ever changing, it's, you know, people are like, ah, keywords aren't as important. There are certain things that, you know, people are saying, oh, this used to matter. It doesn't matter anymore. Well, I still think that having a primary keyword that you're targeting, that you're putting in the title, that you're, you know, putting early on in your copy, that's all stuff that's really important. And a lot of times that gets overlooked. Someone might come up with some really catchy title, but if it doesn't have the primary keyword, then it's not actually going to rank. You know, for instance, there was a, a post on Breaking 80 where I was like, man, why hasn't this post gotten more traffic? And it's because I didn't include one word in the keyword that I was trying to rank for. And so the keyword I kind of had was for something that was going to be much harder to, to rank for. Uh, it was a specific location. So you were getting all sorts of hotel things and, you know, really big sites that were showing up. But if you go just a little bit, you you know, more specific, a little bit more niche, and you add golf to that same keyword, then all of a sudden I started ranking for, you know, that specific word. It was the location with golf. And then in turn, as 
that got showed more. And as you got a little bit more click-through rate, it actually started showing for the main term as well. So some of these little changes can actually make a big difference. And it's that balance between how do you do it from an SEO perspective and how do you do it from a copywriting perspective? And when you can marry the two, that's kind of when you hit the sweet spot for affiliate marketing and for niche sites. For the meta description, and that's the little sentence underneath the title, I know it was so important back in the day, but at some point, it's probably like five years ago at this point, yeah. Google started taking that as a suggestion, whatever you put your, for your meta description, and they'll just grab whatever they want. Yep. They'll slam it in there depending on what the search term is. So, I mean, they're trying to get a better click-through rate, but where do you see that? Because I at one point, I just stopped doing meta descriptions because I was like, ah, F it. Google is um, just picking whatever they want. So wh what's your take on that? Totally. I think it's kind of a best practice. Like I always try and create something that's compelling, that has the potential to be very clickable, you know, try and kind of pose a question that people want the answer to, you know, have some sort of open loop or a hook that makes people want to do it. Does it always show up? No. And you'll see that Google will serve different metadata for the same page, depending on what the search query was. And so sometimes it'll show up and sometimes it won't. But I think that also, you know, there are a couple things you can do to optimize the post. And this is getting more into SEO than copywriting. There are certain things you can do to optimize the post to help make sure that you get certain metadata things that show up. So for instance, I like to use on my longer post, a table of contents. So, you know, basically it'll show all the H2 tags or H3 tags or whatever I decide, and people can kind of jump down to that section of the post. Well, oftentimes what you'll see is that you'll have links in your metadata to specific sections of the post. And so you kind of look at like everything that can show up within meta. You know, you can have review stars, you can have review scores, you can have a description, you can have links. And it's almost like the more things you can get to include in your description, in your you know metadata that shows up in your search result, the higher the likelihood that somebody's actually going to, to click on this. And so I try and structure all my posts, especially if they're review posts or whatever they are, with as much of that stuff as I can to get myself the best shot at it. And I would say, you know, these days, it's probably only a third of the time or maybe half of the time that my description that I want to show up actually does. But usually you can still get fairly high click-through rates if you have optimized the rest of your post as well. That's a great point. And I, I forget about how much real estate Google gives certain results compared to others. And you may have to look around on your site, different keywords and all that sort of thing. And then you'll see every now and then someone gets like four times as much space because they have all those uh, subheadings and some other rich data in there. Right. And all of that stuff, when you do it kind of properly and you lay it out properly, then you're also increasing the chances that you're going to get that featured snippet. And that's where often I will get, you know, there's kind of a balance. Some people say, well, you don't want the featured snippet because that's going to hurt click-through rate because they're showing too much information. For my posts that have gotten that, usually I've found that they haven't shown enough. They show just enough to kind of entice you. For instance, you know, I had the featured snippet for best golf gifts for a long time. And I was getting a ton of traffic because it would show, you know, maybe five of them, but then you've got another other 30. Um, so people are clearly like, oh yeah, I want to see this. And so really trying to figure out how to structure your data and trying to do it in just an organized way. You know, the clearer it is for you, the clearer it is for the user, the clearer it's going to be for search engines to be able to prioritize that type of thing. And the easier you can make it on, you know, everybody else, the higher the likelihood that you're going to start, you know, seeing increases in search. And this is all very generic kind of low level advice, but I've kind of found that you don't have to be an SEO expert. You just have to follow some basic best practices to start seeing some success. 
if you get most of it right, most of the time you'll be in good shape. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Google, Google is smart. You know, they want to show the right things to the right people and they want to show high quality content out there. And so if you're doing that and then making it as easy as possible for them to crawl it and find it, then it's going to treat you well over the long term. One of the other big ranking factors is how long someone might spend on your site, which indicates to Google, hey, they're getting good information over there. And let's talk about how that relates directly to copywriting. Yeah. So one of the earliest copywriting lessons that I learned, and this kind of applied specifically to long form sales letters, but I think it really works for, you know, blog posts, cornerstone pillar content as well, is the sole purpose of every line you write is to get people to keep reading the next line. And so that's often how I kind of approach my, my writing and my reviews, my blog posts is what can I write that's going to make people want to stick around. And, you know, there's a concept called open loops where basically you pose a question or you leave people with a cliffhanger and then you kind of say, okay, we're going to get back to that. We'll answer that later on. And then you change the subject. So you leave people with this kind of question in their mind that says, oh, but I, I want to know what the answer to that is. People generally naturally want resolution. So they're going to keep reading to find the answer to that. And really good copywriters, they might weave, you know, two, three, four open loops within a single article. So people are just constantly having questions come up that they need resolution to. And the only way to do that is to then keep reading. And as you mentioned, you know, one of the biggest ranking factors for search is how much time people are spending on your site. Are people getting the results they need? Or are they showing up for 20 seconds and then clicking back and going to, you know, a different search result? So if you can create compelling content that's answering people's questions while also posing new ones and, you know, piquing their curiosity and getting them to keep reading, then that's generally going to, to serve you well. And, you know, really that's one of the, the good tenets of copywriting is being able to hook a reader in and continue to do it. And if you can marry that with also understanding SEO and how to work in your different keywords and everything, then you really start to find the sweet spot where you can really make a niche site work well for you. I'm going to put you on the spot. So if we need to just skip this, we, we can. Yep. Do you have an example from maybe one of your sites where you do have an open loop so people can get an idea and I'll buy you some time. I love open loops in TV shows. So I'm thinking, I mean, it's tons of shows do this, but a lot of these bingeable shows like Breaking Bad, for example, you have five big major problems that happen. Did you watch Breaking Bad? Yeah. I've watched the first season of it. <laughs> okay. So it didn't hook you good, like well enough. No, actually it did hook me. The The thing with Breaking Bad is my wife was basically like, ah, like it's too intense for me to watch at night. And generally I don't watch TV unless it's like, you know, an hour before bed with her. So I was like, as much as I want to watch this, I'm not going to take the time to go and watch it. <laughs> well, it gets worse. So it's good that you stopped yeah. <laughs> after the first season. Sure. So what, what happens in Breaking Bad and many other shows, you'll end up with, a uh, like five or six things that need to get resolved. They'll resolve yep. like three. And then maybe at the very end of the episode, some other major catastrophe is going to happen. So you have to watch the next episode to get resolution to all these open loops. So that's a great example. I'm sure people can think of open loops in TV shows that they enjoy as well. And Sean, do you have any examples from your content? That's what I'm trying to think about a really good example. And one, I would have to go back to see how deliberate it was, but there was a 
blog post that I wrote recently on Breaking 80 that was comparing two launch monitors. So basically devices you stick behind you on a driving range that tell you how far you hit it. And these are two, they're both about $500. So people are constantly saying, okay, which one's better? And they're ones where you know, they both do a good job, but they do very different things well. So you kind of try and bring up, it's like, okay, you know, this feature is great on this, but in a minute, we're going to talk about why it may not be all that it's cracked up to be. And the way I generally like to do those comparison reviews is you kind of give each one a score. So it's like price, which one wins, presentation, features, you know, ease of use. And so that's kind of one of those that I found it's not quite as deliberately asking a question and giving them a resolution. But when you know that there's going to be those rankings, people are interested in what those are going to be. So if the first thing you say is like presentation, like how does it look in the box? This one goes to flight scope one to zero. You know, it's kind of asking the question. It's like, okay, well, well, what's the Rapsodo going to win? What's the other one going to win? And so it kind of keeps people reading. And then you try and come up with a few different things within those. And I think I did this in this post where it's like, well, there's actually one glaring problem with this flight scope one that we're going to talk about in a minute. And so, so I think that's one example and, you know, maybe we can link to that post or whatever, but um, you know, really trying to think of ways, okay, how can I hook people in and what are the questions I would be asking as a consumer? That's kind of why I say it's like, what do I want to know? What would interest me? And if it's interesting to me, then generally speaking, it's probably going to be interesting to other people. And that's how I try and structure things. Perfect. Good, good thinking. <laughs> I don't know if that was a good answer or not, but that was the best I could come up with on the spot. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. And I was going to say, just as you were saying that, uh, probably a tip, and you could let me know if you agree, is you maybe would write your article and then come back. And then you know what's going to happen later. You know what's covered later. So you can put in a little hint, a little foreshadowing to what's coming up. And that's a good way to open a loop, even if you didn't have it in there initially. Because I know sometimes people get bogged down with writing. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the best things you can do is write your post. And then usually it's pretty easy to kind of go back and structure things where it might even be a, a sentence or two. Just kind of like tease. You know, I know that we're talking about this feature later on. You might just tease something that says, oh, by the way, there's one killer feature of this product that makes the whole thing worth it. You know, stick around to figure out what that is. And that it could be as simple as that. And those tend to work really well. Awesome. And then we'll hit the final point here about copywriting and actually why it's so important for affiliate marketers. And that's building trust. So how does it tie in, Sean? Trust is the single most important thing you can have on the internet. It's very hard to get and it's very easy to lose. And through your copywriting, and this goes less into like persuasive writing, but just your writing in general is like, how open are you being? How vulnerable are you being? You know, I gave an example in a recent blog post slash video where I talked about my first affiliate site ever. It was for a service called Jamarama. It was online guitar lessons. It was on ClickBank. It had a 75% commission. And me thinking I was a genius, I was like, Psh. 75% commission, all I got to do is throw up site, throw up a couple reviews, and it's going to be good to go. I'm going to make a bunch of money. Well, I was too cheap to actually buy the product. So I never actually used it and I was doing reviews on it. So you can imagine how that went. Didn't make a single sale. So at the time, I wasn't being very authentic. I wasn't building any trust. But more recently, sharing that story, where I was like, this is a pretty embarrassing story, but this is the truth about how I got into affiliate marketing. It was the truth about how I dove in. And so you kind of share that and people are like, oh, like, yeah, I was thinking this was going to be really easy, but clearly it's not. If, you know, this guy that kind of seems like he knows what he's talking about now made those big mistakes. So if you share some of those vulnerable stories, and I think the copywriting part is 
you know, it gets into storytelling. How can you do it in a compelling manner that once, you know, you know, gets people to keep reading and, you know, keep moving from line to line, the more you can work that in, the more trust you're going to build and the more money you're going to make. The reason Breaking 80, which is all about golf product reviews has been so successful is because it's not an affiliate site where I just find the, you know, statistics for all the products and put together a comparison table. Like I only review things that I've actually used and I talk about all those specific products. And so people have kind of come to learn. They're like, oh, if Sean reviews it, generally he is going to have a pretty honest and accurate review. But as soon as you mess that up, as soon as you, you know, do something to make a quick buck or start selling people on a product that you actually don't believe in, but you know, you can make a bunch of money on when you lose that trust, that's, you know, when it's all going to be over and you can find yourself, you know, really struggling. So I think copywriting is one of the best ways to tell those stories, to be vulnerable, to build rapport with people over whatever your common interest is. And, you know, that's just something that you kind of learn how to do over time and through practice. So with that said, do you recommend that people usually stick to a topic area that they are not necessarily passionate about, but that they're interested in? Or do you have other advice related to choosing a niche and that kind of, I think? You know, my advice might differ from a lot of people. There's a lot of people that have, you know, niche sites that are just about around whatever they knew they could make money in and they'll hire out the writers and they won't even do a whole lot of the work. For me personally, I've got four sites now and they're all about things that I genuinely enjoy. And I'll hire out the occasional writer, but usually I will write things I'll write all the content myself because I enjoy it. And I think that I've got a you know specific expertise on it. So the advice I usually give for someone who's, you know, getting into a niche and they plan to do the work themselves is come up with 50 article ideas. If you can't off the top of your head, come up with 50 article ideas for a new site, then you're going to find yourself struggling to create content. And then once you've got those ideas, then go dive into some of the keyword research and make sure they're things that people are actually searching for. And then from there, you can dive in and be like, okay, are there affiliate products that are related to this? Can you actually make money off of these things? And so, you know, I think that it certainly helps if you have passion for your particular niche, because if you have passion for it, then you're genuinely going to want to learn more about it. You're going to come more knowledgeable about those subjects, where if you're not, you know, for instance, there was one from early on in my online days, right? A friend who had a site on dog checks, checks with dogs on them. And he was making like five or six grand a month as an affiliate site. But he eventually got to the point where he's like, yeah, I can't do this anymore. And he sold it just because it's like, I, I care less about dog checks. Whereas all of the sites that I have, they add value to my life. For instance, you know, with breaking 80, yeah, makes a a good amount of money, but it also has given me so many contacts into the golf world that I wouldn't have had otherwise. It's given me free products to review. It's given me press trips. It's given me all of these experiences that I never would have been able to have without the site. And I think that's one of the great benefits of having these types of websites is the doors that it opens up to you that the average people, average person simply can't get. And I've seen that across all of my sites, whether it's Location Rebel, Breaking 80, or the my new cocktail site, Slightly Pretentious. You know, it's the easiest way to build relationships and open up the door to those relationships and experiences that you just can't get. And like you said, you started Breaking 80 in 2012, is that right? 2012, yeah. <laughs> so just imagine how terrible it would be to work on a site for that long that you didn't even care about. Like, people are just not going to do it, so... Totally. And there might be people that, and I mean, obviously there's people that make great six figure incomes around whatever random topic they want, but 
I just don't find that enjoyable. Some people enjoy the game of it, and that's like what niche sites are all about. It's just about making money. That is where the passion is and making money. But you know, if I can make money and also enhance my enjoyment of something that I love to do, it's like the great thing about golf is I'll be able to do that for the rest of my life. And now I've got this asset that's just going to make the game that much more enjoyable for me for you know the foreseeable future. Super cool. And we'll put links up for everybody so you can check out the sites that uh, Sean mentioned here. You do a bunch of YouTube videos. Can you tell us about the the channel a, a little bit and what you cover? Yeah. So on Location Rebel, we focus mostly on how to build what I call a bridge business. So this isn't necessarily the thing that you're going to do forever, but it's the thing that's going to get you from point A to point B. So for most people on my channel, you know, 70, 80% of people, that's freelance writing because it's one of the easiest ways to make money online. It's a skill you've already got. There's a huge demand for it. I mean, it can help you build up some skills and momentum that are going to get you to the point where you're ready to say, start an affiliate site. You know, the concept of of affiliate marketing is generally pretty easy, but in practice, you do have to have some skills like copywriting, like, you know, basic website design, SEO, you know, those are things that can, you know, take a little bit of time to develop. So freelance writing is a great way where you can potentially pay the bills, learn some of those skills, and then, you know, transition into that more passion-based or passive income style business. So we kind of talk about each of the phases of that process. So the first one is building the right skills. Uh, the second one is freelancing. And the third one is kind of building the niche site, building the blog, building the passive income business. So at Location Rebel, we kind of talk about all three of those things. Awesome. And I went back and I listened to the Tropical MBA podcast that I love. <laughs> and Sean, you were interviewed in 2011. Do you even remember doing the interview? Well, so here's the, the thing. You know, I talked about how I went to Thailand in January of 2010. So the reason I went to Thailand was because Dan Andrews, the founder of the Tropical MBA, had this idea called the Tropical MBA, where he's like, I want to bring an American dude out to Asia. I'll pay for your basic living expenses. You work for me part time. I'll teach you online marketing. And the rest of the time, you can build your own business or do whatever. And so I applied and January. 8th of 2010, I flew to Bangkok and met this random dude from the internet at 1am at the Bangkok airport. And it was one of the best decisions I ever made. So over the course of the next two years, Dan and I spent a lot of time together in Asia, Philippines, Thailand, working together back in the States. So the long answer to your question is we had a lot of interviews and we talked about a lot of things. So I'm not sure what this particular one covered, but I'm excited to find out. That's yeah, that's Amazing. I didn't know you were the guy. I didn't, I couldn't remember. I think I've listened to, I was the very, I think he ended up doing like 10 or 11 and I was the the very first one. So (laughs) the first intern. So one thing that you said was about video blogging, right? I had to think about it because now we just call it vlogging. So way back then you said something about video blogging and either doing it daily or like three to five times a week. And I, well, I I took a step back and I thought that's amazing because that's what people are trying to do now. And, you know, Casey Nice said a lot of other folks were publishing daily vlogs and you mentioned it back then. So I'm just curious, like, 
I know you, I didn't give you time to think yeah. about this, but like bridging the gap from, I know you published a lot of videos and you publish very often on YouTube yep. and just the 10 year time difference, any thoughts on it? Kind of an open-ended question here. Yeah. I wish I had stuck with it. That's the big one. I moved, I moved to Bali for two months in 2011 to go live with Dan. Cause Dan got a place for a year. He's like, Hey, come on out. Like we got a room for you. Come, come do it. And at the time I had a friend who was, you know, big into video and he's like, I'll tell you what, I'm going to give you a couple cameras. I think you should do a daily or, you know, multi-time a week vlog while you were there. And I will help give you some feedback and whatever. And the guy that did that, his name is Brandon Lee. And now he is one of, you know, the, you know, most impressive travel videographers ever. You know, I think he's got, he's got about half a million subscribers on YouTube and his stuff is absolutely amazing. And he was kind of giving me this advice way back then. And I was like, man, I wish I should have stuck to it. But as you probably know, YouTube can be a great thing or it can be a really frustrating thing. You can put all this time and effort into, you know, daily vlogging or weekly vlogging or whatever it is. And it doesn't always pay off right away. It's, you know, I've, think I've posted 300, 350 videos and we're at 25,000 subscribers. Whereas occasionally you get someone that comes in and out of nowhere, they've got, you know, millions. And the one other thing I remember is there was a guy named Mark Weems who lived in the same apartment building as me in Thailand that was crazy about street food. And he was making these little videos about street food. And I was like, yeah, that's cool that you're doing this. You're just genuinely excited. Last time I looked, he's now got 7.3 million subscribers on YouTube doing nothing but doing food blogs around the world. And you can tell he is still so genuinely excited and passionate about what he's doing. And that comes through in his videos. And so it kind of goes back to, you know, YouTube and niche sites are a little bit different, but if you're genuinely passionate about something, that's going to bode well for you because people will be able to see that come through in your content. Very cool. Yeah. I think I've seen Brandon Lee's YouTube channel. He does photography and videography stuff, right? Yeah, he has really cool travel videos about specific locations. So there's one called Hong Kong Strong. It's one of the most impressive videos I've ever seen, considering it's from a one-man crew. <laughs> wow. The other thing, just now we're in the weeds here, but the world that we work in is so small where you know there was this person that you were neighbors with and blah, blah, blah. I interviewed yep. Dan, you know, last last year and been a fan of the show. And now we're talking. And I know uh, Matt Jevanisi, who's like basically a neighbor of mine. So very small world once you like take a step back. It really is. And, you know, again, I've been doing this since 2009. So you get to know a lot of people throughout that process. But it's also interesting to see the people that stick with it long term. It's interesting to see the people that kind of come out of nowhere and all of a sudden, you know, have these huge followings. Like I remember I tweeted, do you know who Matt Diavella is the yep. productivity YouTuber? So I tweeted him something a while back, you know, a couple months ago. And the reply I got was, Oh shit, Sean Ogle, I've been following you since for years. And I went back and found the Twitter notification email of him following me in like 2011 when he had like 43 Twitter followers. <laughs> and I was just like, man, it's crazy to see. Like sometimes that can be demotivating. We're like, wow. Like, look at all these people that have come so much farther, so much faster, but then you take a step back and you're kind of like, oh, well, you know, we've, we've done okay. <laughs> yeah, you're doing um, right. You're doing but right. it is a, it is a very small world to say the least. 
Very cool. Well, thanks, Sean. Where can people find you? LocationRebel.com is probably the easiest place. YouTube.com slash LocationRebel. Instagram is just uh, at Sean Ogle, S-E-A-N-O-G-L-E. Same thing for Twitter. And if you're into golf, Breaking80.com with 80 spelt out. And uh, if you're into cocktails, SlightlyPretentious.co. <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, we'll link up everything so it's easy for people to get to. And you do have a bit of a freebie for folks. So I will uh, make sure that that link is out there too. And do you want to just do a little description of what that freebie is for folks? Yeah. So if you're looking to build kind of your bridge business, if you're looking to start online, but you're not totally sure the best way to do it, you can just go to locationrebel.com slash hi. We put together a free six-day course that kind of walks you through everything you need to know that you don't really know you need to know. So it's a great starting place for someone that wants to get online, but they're not exactly sure how to go about doing it. Thanks a lot, Sean. Appreciate it. Thanks, Doug. Really appreciate it. Thanks to Sean. Be sure to check out Location Rebel, both his blog and over on the YouTube side. Like I mentioned, he sort of covers things from a different perspective, but a lot of the similar topics. And when you do check out his site, Slightly Pretentious and Breaking 80, both of those sites, you'll see he's doing a lot of the stuff that we talk about, that I do, that you probably do, or you're looking to start doing. So it's the same kind of stuff. And it's great to have a different perspective. And he's coming at it with uh, actually several more years of experience since he got started back in 2009 or so. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. Have a great day out there and we'll catch you on the next episode.